Hello, we at Grace Covenant Church in Gunnison, Colorado are grateful and humbled that we get to be part of your sanctification today. We invite you to review our sermons online, but also stress the importance of being joined to a biblical local church, the life of the church, and the spiritual gifts God has given us to express in the church. Our website is www.gracegunnison.com. There you can find sermons and other resources as well as our location and service times. The members of Grace Covenant Church Gunnison pray that the following messages will be a blessing to you. So honored to be with all of you this morning and what an encouragement and blessing it is, have, it is to have folks that are visiting come and worship with us and it, uh, I can't tell you how encouraging that is for me as a pastor and for each of the folks that are here. We are a small church, we're a church plant and we're hoping that the Lord uh, will bless this work and grow this church and As Chris alluded to, this is a um, spiritually dark area we are in. And for those of you that do live in Colorado, there is more light in other places. If you look at the the interstate corridor or if you look even further west. But it seems like this high ground here seems to have a a hold of of, uh, darkness, I guess would be the best word for it. And so we pray that the Lord would, uh, would do a work in this area, not only here, but across the state, across our land. I mean, the whole, our, the world is desperately in need of, of Christ and the gospel of Christ to go out. And so, we are in the gospel of Matthew. We have been preaching expositionally, as we always do, through this book, this gospel. And if you want to turn to chapter 9, chapter 9. So, Jesus is performing numerous miracles uh, in, in chapter 8 and 9, we see a progression of miracles that what he is trying to tell us is that the long-awaited Messiah is here. Your King has come, the Anointed One. And we see His power, we see His authority, we also see His compassion for those that are desperately in need of Him. We see His power over sickness, over disease, over fevers, over the natural world. We see His power over, over creation. Well, if you remember two weeks ago on the boat and the storm arose and Jesus said, be still. And the seas and the, and the wind obeyed Him. The work of power over his, over his own creation. And then last week we saw the power over the supernatural. How the man... The, the, the two men, how they were demon-possessed. And Jesus said, go. And the demons departed and went into the swine and jumped over the cliff. So we see His power over the supernatural world, the unseen world. And now we see what I believe is probably the most important of His power and authority. And it's over the power to forgive sins. And here, the message this morning is the authority over the forgiveness of sins. Notice that all of these things that we see of the miracles are what the Old Testament Scriptures foretold that the Messiah would be about and would do. He's just doing what God said He would do. And He's wanting us to see that this is He. This is He. When I think about, um, are you in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy? We're in the women's second Timothy. Well, first Timothy, Paul says this, first Timothy 1 Timothy 1.15. 
This is a most trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul said that. Can you say that with all truthfulness? That this is a most trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I, can you say that, am foremost. I pray that you can. As we look at this, I want to read this text as we start this morning. Matthew 9, and we'll read verses 1 through 8. And just so you know, for later on, if you want to go back and read, there are parallel passages in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, and also in Mark chapter 2 of this same account. In fact, Mark and Luke actually give us much more details in this particular account. And so we will need to look a little bit at them. But let us read this morning, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 1. So getting in the boat, so he's, he's over at the region of Gadara, and he's just healed the demoniac, demoniac, and now he gets in the boat, and he crosses over the sea, and he came to his own, his own city, which was Capernaum at this time. And it says, they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed, seeing their faith. Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up, and he went home. And when the crowds saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. May His Spirit commit this to our heart. May He open up this passage to us this morning, I pray. When we look at this, when we look at this entirety of the scene here, I want us to start off with a statement of truth that sin is the cause of our misery. You say, what misery? Any and all misery. Sin is the root of of this cause. And here we see in this scene, one who is most miserable. He is a man laying on 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 a bed, unable to bring himself to anyone. He must have someone carry him. He is miserable because we know that right off the bat, Jesus says, be of good cheer, which implies that he probably wasn't before. But we see this most miserable condition. And we see... First of all, we need to see the setting, and then I want, to, I want us to see the action, and I want us to see the response. I'd like us to look at this from five headings, if you will. And first of all, I want us to see, if, if you're taking notes there in our, in our uh, uh, order of worship, there is a place for that. But I want us to show, show you that first we want to look at the faith of the friends, and then I want us to look at the favor of Christ. Thirdly, the frenzy of the scribes. Fourthly, the forgiver of sins. And fifthly, the fear of the crowds. 
And so first we come to the faith of his friends. And you might ask, well, where are you going with this? Well, Mark helps us a little more, gives us a little more detail as to what is happening. In his gospel, in fact, if you want to look there in Mark 2, I'll flip over here and take a look at the first part. Um, so, verse 2, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1 of Mark, he says, When he, that is Jesus, came back to Capernaum. So he's leaving from the region of Gadara, where he just sent the demons out of the man. And you remember the man from Gadara, he said, I want to go with you, Jesus. He says, no, no, you stay here and tell of the great things that Jesus has done. He left a witness to those people who wanted Jesus to leave. They said, get out of here. You're, we, we don't want you. So Jesus gets in the boat. He goes over to Capernaum now. And it says that uh, it was heard that he was at home. So many were gathered together. So we know that scribes and Pharisees and many here are in this house. And it says there was no longer room. Not even near the door. You couldn't even get next to the door. I mean, it was jam-packed. And it says he was speaking the word to them. He was preaching, teaching and preaching. And it says they came to him. This is four men, it says. Bringing him a paralytic. Now, being unable to get to him, they removed the roof. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, we think we have distractions or, or somebody coughs or a baby cries. I mean, this is the roof being opened up. And these men wanted to get this friend to Jesus. And so they remove it and he lets him down the pallet. So that's the scene or the setting, if you will, of these friends. And here are these friends. I mean, think of the, the faith that these friends must have had to not only have compassion for their friend, but know who was the one that could help their friend. Who was the one that could save their friend. The one who was the great healer. And so this paralyzed man and his friends, this paralyzed man and his friends, all of them, so the five, must have had much faith to believe and trust in the one who they were going to, that this man could make a difference. And they knew who could save. They knew who could heal. We see an active faith in these men. I mean, a belief in the power of Jesus and the goodness of God. A strong faith. I mean, these men, they refused to be hindered. There was no obstacle going to get in their way. I mean, they were going to not let a door be closed. They were not going to let a roof prevent them from getting to Jesus. I mean, these men were zealous to get this poor man who could not get himself there. And I want us to see a few characteristics of these friends. One is their compassion. Now, they probably wanted to get to Jesus, these four men, but they knew, poor man over here, this man that could not get to them. Let's take him. He needs to get to Jesus. We see their compassion that they want to get him to the Savior. And we also see the confidence in these men. The confidence that they had full trust in Jesus' ability, his compassion, his authority and power to change this man. And their commitment, as I alluded to before, they were zealous. I mean, they were going to demolition the house if it needed to be. You know, they were, they were, <laughs> there was no, well, I guess we'll go home tomorrow. Maybe we'll get in the next day. No, they, well, we need to get into Jesus. We see this incredible burden for souls. 
What an example for those of us who are Christians to have a burden for souls, a burden for the friends, the family members who are outside of Jesus yet. This paralyzed man. When we think about this, I want us to look at different parts of the scene and put us in the place of each of them. The paralyzed man, he is in this horrible condition of body. Now we're not told exactly, but if he's paralyzed, he's not able to move his legs and and I'm going to get in trouble because I know there's a paramedic here and people that know much more about doctors than I do. But paralyzed means obviously not able to get up and walk. He's not able to move himself to Jesus. So he's in need of someone else. He's in a debilitated condition. This man is in a miserable state. He's disease-ridden. He's helpless and hopeless. He could do nothing for himself. Isn't this a picture of our spiritual self? We can, we're helpless and hopeless. We can't get to God. We can't build a tower of battle to climb up to God. We can't ascend to the heights. He must come down to us. He must reveal Himself. Glory to God, He has. In His Scriptures, in Jesus Christ Himself, in Him condescending to a helpless and hopeless mankind. And we see that the outside of this man is the inside condition of each one and every one of us outside of Christ. That we are in a helpless condition. We are unable to do anything about our sin problem. I can't fix my sin problem. I can't do that. I have no power. I have no authority to do that. I'm unable even to come to the Savior. And this speaks of spiritual inability. The, the, the one who is lost is said to be dead, is said to be blind, and unable to even come to Jesus. Someone had to bring him. Jesus had to come to them. Someone had to bring him to Jesus. And so here we see this, this wreck of a man, this, this wretch inside and outside, if we think about this paralyzed man. And he's bedridden. He, no ability to heal himself. No ability to even come to the physician without someone carrying him there, bringing him. And so he's unable to even save himself, as all of us are, unable to save ourselves from our desperate need of a Savior because of our sin problem. So we see the helpless and hopeless state of all outside of God's grace. And now, from there, we see the paralyzed man, we see the friends, now we see the favor of Christ. We see the grace of Christ. Christ first looks upon this man and the first thing he tells us is he sees their faith. Now, can you and I see faith? Faith in the unseen. Can we see faith? Now, we can see the fruit of faith. I can see the way that you the way that you respond when life is crumbling around you. I can see the fruit of that, but can I see actual faith? Well, no, but Jesus can. And Jesus here even knows their thoughts. I mean, what a shocking scene. Think about how shocking this is. I mean, you have crowds of people listening to Jesus. All of a sudden, the roof's coming apart. There's pieces of grass and dirt. Whatever's on the roof coming down. It had to be a big opening because they lay this man down with ropes. And so the scene is already shocking. And then 
what does Jesus say right off the bat? Be of good cheer. Well, that was shocking. Okay, be of good cheer. Why? Are you going to make him walk again? Is he going to be healthy and ready to go again? No, not, not, not at this point. No, he said, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Now, we don't know what's been, we know what the scribes are the, that Jesus tells us, but even the men that laid down the ropes, are they, are they scratching their head going, you know, we, we brought him here because he can't walk. And you said, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven? But the scribes, obviously, are questioning, more than questioning. They are upset very much about this comment. I want us to think about the way God sees things and the way man sees things. You see, man, you and I, can be very focused on the physical and on the material, on the things that we see, the health of a body, The soul is what God is looking at. He's looking at the inside, what what you can't see. Man focuses on the symptoms. He wants to fix the symptom and not address the problem. Where do we see that? All around us? I mean, you might directly think in the medical field, we, we address symptoms by this and that. But other places, politically, we address symptoms. Economically, we address symptoms. You name it. We address symptoms and not the problem. God doesn't do that. He, Jesus Christ, He goes right to the issue. And the issue is, the root of the problem is sin. The root of the problem is not that the man can't walk. That's a symptom. Now, I'm not saying it's a direct symptom. I mean, we know in places like Job that uh, sicknesses and and Problems are not the direct result of sin all the time, they can be. But we know that any type of malady, any type of infirmity, any type of issue goes back to the problem of sin. We would not have those things if sin had not come into the world, right? And so because of that, we can address, we can know that the root problem is sin. And Jesus comes and he goes right to the issue, this unseen, incurable issue. That this man has. And he goes right to the issue of misery. You see, when we think about it, it says, be of good cheer. The one who, whose sins have been dealt with, dealt with by Jesus' death upon the cross, dealt with by the Holy Spirit giving you faith and repentance to believe upon the gospel, the one who has, whose sins are forgiven is of great cheer. You can have all kinds of Problems and circumstances in life. But if your sins are forgiven, you're of good cheer. You have joy in the Holy Spirit. You can, you can go through these problems knowing that God is sovereign and that one day all of these things will be done away with anyway and my sins are forgiven. Therefore, I am living eternal life with Jesus Christ and I will see Him. And so we have joy. And good cheer. And that's what he's saying to this man. Be of good cheer. For forevermore you will have joy. No matter the circumstances. And that, that takes me back to Psalm 32. Where we started this morning. Oh how happy. Oh how blessed is the man. Whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sins are covered. How blessed is the man. To whom the Lord does not impute. Iniquity or sin. We can be of good cheer for this. 
And then we come to the startling, or one of the startling places in this scene. We see the frenzy of these scribes, right? Jesus knows their heart. He knows what they're thinking. And see their reaction here in verse 3. They're saying to themselves, this fellow, just stop right there. This fellow, excuse me, this is God in front of you. This is Jesus Christ the Messiah. And they're saying, this fellow over there blasphemes. Now they know there's something different about this man. They had to have. They had to have known. Jesus knows their thoughts. Now, does he just know their thoughts? No, he knows our thoughts. We know the omniscience of Jesus. We know that the omniscience of God, that he knows the thoughts. And so even our sinful thoughts, you and I, our sinful thoughts are an affront to a holy God. We are in rebellion in here and in here before it ever comes out. In fact, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, Right? In fact, the book of Proverbs says to guard your heart from out of it flow the wellsprings of life. We need to be careful with what is happening on the inside because our sinful thoughts are high treason against God. Sin and sinful thoughts. I want us to take note about this because there's a great deal of evil in our thought life. I like what... um, Vodi Vakum uh, said, he said, it's only by the grace of God that God didn't strike me down last night for my sinful thoughts. They roll through our life. But when we think about these scribes, in essence, what they say, now it's not completely accurate, but it is proper theology if you think about it. For they knew that only God can forgive sins. So check. So yes, amen to that. Only God can forgive sins. Exactly. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. You know, exactly. That's what I'm trying to tell you. That it is He who stands in front of you. The great I Am is standing in your midst. He's telling them in words that they would understand. But instead, they say, well, this fellow blasphemes. He is... What is blaspheming? That is pretending to be God. That is, blaspheming could be um, anything that's against God. Um, Blasphemy is punished by death, by the way. So if you were to blaspheme, it would be a punishment of stoning to death. So that's what they're thinking. They're not only saying he's blaspheming, but he needs to die. Now they're going to get their way not too long from now. But blasphemy is to speak against God in attitude or speech, or it could be to pretend to be God, to put yourself on the throne where God is to be. It is to speak irreverently of His name, to use His name in vain. When we think about even the first table of the law, blasphemy could be according to any of those first four commandments. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make a graven image. You shall... uh, uh, not use the Lord's name in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. These things. So speaking against the things of God. Now we see the second table of the law is more uh, addressed to uh, image bearers, to, to, to you and I, and so on. But when we think about blasphemy, this is an insult, an insult to God the Father, an insult 
to Jesus Christ the Son, an insult to the Holy Spirit. What Jesus is doing here by saying that, your sins are forgiven. He is claiming and testifying that he is the Messiah. He is, his, his claims are self-attesting, meaning they are self-authenticating. If a claim is made, a true claim is made, you and I can go to a higher authority to confirm the validity of that, right? There is no higher authority than Jesus Christ. And so what he says in his word is the highest authority. So what he is telling you is, this is, this is, end of story, period. This is. Now, whether you believe what is, is your problem. But this is. It's just like, it's like, I, I tell this example to some people, it'd be as if I were to get up on the highest mountain here in Colorado and, and think, well, I could just jump off and fly because I don't believe in gravity. Well, gravity will take its effect when I attempt to flap my wings. Gravity is, whether I believe it or not. I can stand in front of a train and say, I do not believe in trains. Well, when that train makes contact with me, <laughs> See what I'm saying? Well, the truth is, and so what Jesus is saying is, I, I am He, and your sins are forgiven because I am granting that to you based on the work that I'm going to do. You see, those in the time before Christ's death were looking forward by faith to what Christ would accomplish upon the cross, and they believed God. Abraham believed God, and there was accounted to him as righteousness. We believe. Those who believe God because of what he has done. What he said he would do. And then Jesus comes and he asks a question to these crowds that are here. He said, which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise up and walk? Now, I don't know how much time he elapsed before he said that for them to answer. I'm fairly certain they probably didn't answer. But notice what he says. So that, that's a purpose statement. So that you may know. That reminds me of John. These are written so that you may know. He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a messianic title, that the Son of Man has authority, power on earth to forgive sins. So that, purpose statement, you will know, rise up. He told that man on the, on the bed, rise up. Jesus here is making a truth claim again, and he's backing it up with another amazing sign. Sign. You see, a miracle is a sign pointing to a truth. He's trying to tell them that I am he in your midst. He is telling them and telling us. And he says, rise up, get up. It's, the, the word implies a, a waking up. Uh, coming to life, rising up, take your bed and get up and go home. And what does he do? He gets up and he goes home. And not only does he, he carries his bed. I mean, this man probably hadn't walked for a long time. He didn't say, Jesus, let me get some food and some nourishment, take a little nap, and then I'll carry it and then I'll live on there. No, he got up and he picked it up and he walked out. And the people were like, what just happened here? 
What just happened here? Uh, this man was, was rose up to full strength. It was, it was a healing of immediacy. Now, get up. This demonstrates to me, I think it demonstrates to us, the irresistible grace of God. You say, what do you mean? The, irres- the irresistible grace of God is, when we think about the doctrines of grace, this is one of the doctrines of grace, but what it means is when Jesus calls, when God calls, He calls and you come. When He says, rise up, you rise up. Now the, the, the free offer of the gospel goes out to all. And you say, well, if, if that's so, then why don't all believe? Well, when the gospel goes out, when the free gospel goes out, many do refuse it. But when God Himself and the Spirit comes and touches the soul of a believer, He gets up and He comes because He commands you to do so. He says, rise up and come. And we see this, that when this sinner is brought to Christ and He calls to the soul of this sinner, this one is now enabled he is empowered to rise up and walk, to rise up to eternal life. That's what is happening here physically before our eyes in this scene. That when we think about God's irresistible grace, when, when He speaks and He says, rise up, you, you rise. You do. You come to the Savior. And you get up and you take your mat and, and you work. You were unable at one time to do so, and now you are able. Now your, your will has changed, and you, you want to follow Him. And He brings us to Him. And so when Christ, going back to the leper, when Christ says, be clean, you are immediately cleansed. In fact, when He says your sins are forgiven, it's done. It means you are justified before a holy God. That happens at conversion. When one comes to Christ, our sins are forgiven. When, when Jesus says, Open your eyes. You immediately see. For I was once blind. And now I see. I have spiritual eyes. Because God has opened them. And he's done this by his grace. And when Jesus says live. You rise to spiritual life. You come to newness of life in him. So he says which is easier. Which is easier to say. Well. They're both probably easy to say. Rise up, walk, your sins are forgiven. But I, I want to think about this. What is easier to accomplish? Have you ever thought about that? The healing of the body or the forgiveness of sins? Now, the one who created everything you see who spoke the world into existence, who said, let there be light, and there was light. The one who said, let the land come out of the water, and let the waters go so far, and let the sun rule the day, and the moon rule the night. The one who said that can heal your body, boom, like this. That is not a problem for him at all. He can create, he can make dead bones come to life. And that brings us to the forgiveness of sins. Is that easy to accomplish? Now, the forgiveness of sins to you and I is a free gift. It costs you nothing. But it costs God everything to accomplish. It costs 
Him everything. That He had to give His Son. That there was only one way to save sinners. There was only one way. It cost Him everything. Because it had to be purchased. It had to be purchased by the atoning work of only one who was pure and holy, the pure Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who had to go up to Calvary, who had to carry the burden of, of your sin and my sin, who took the wrath of God for me. Oh, to accomplish that was amazing. To forgive sins. To forgive sin. Oh, we could dwell on that for many weeks. That undeserving sinners like you and me. That God had an amazing plan of redemption to save us. Before time even began, he had a plan. And he carried it out. And he has carried it out. And he's coming back. And he's given us time to come to him to repent of our sins and believe upon Christ. And He's calling us to do so. And that brings us to the crowds. We see the fear of the crowds. The crowds, they're amazed. But that's not enough. You can be amazed by God, but that's not enough. They're amazed, but do they believe? They are marveling, but are they coming in repentance and faith? Not in this point, no. The word here that is used in the scriptures is phobia, fear. They have a fear of God, and that's good. A healthy fear of God is good, and they're even glorifying God. But notice what they say, who gave such authority to men. They're almost there, to men. Now, true, Jesus is a man, but not just a man. Jesus is a God-man. Jesus is 100%... God. He is also an absolute human. But what they're missing is the one who they're speaking to. They still see Jesus as a mere man. They still see him as that blasphemer. Not the one who made all. Why aren't they seeing? Why aren't they seeing? Why aren't they coming to Jesus by faith? Do you ever ask that today in today's world? Why, why, why can't they see? It's, it's, it's so easy for you and I to see, is it not? We, we, it's clear. Just believe. But why don't they? I think it's the same reason that sinners don't come to Jesus by faith today. It's their moral depravity. It's the moral perversity in mankind that doesn't want to come to God in His righteousness. We also know that the word says that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the hearts of people, has blinded the minds so that they will not believe. And we also know that the scripture says that we're dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We are blind. So we need a new heart. We need to come to life. We need a regeneration is what we need. We need the work of Christ to be imputed to us. We need the Holy Spirit to wake us. We need to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. That's what we need. And that's what the people here need. That's what the people in our area need. That's what you who are not in Christ need. We need to see that we need a Savior. 
In order to know that we need a Savior, we need to see our sin. And the problem that sin has separated us from a holy God. And we cannot, there is no way to reconcile that in myself. Jesus has done the reconciliation. He has bridged that gap that was unbridgeable by His sacrifice. Now He made us who were once offensive to God now reconciled because now we are clothed in a righteousness not our own. And the sins that we had, the sins that we had that He told this man, your sins are forgiven, that means they are forgotten as far as the east is from the west. They are sent away from Him where it is no longer held to your account. And so when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, instead of the words guilty being across your face, it says forgiven. Forgiven. I have a good brother, friend of mine, and he said that that's what he wants on his stone when he goes to be with the Lord. He says, just write forgiven. That's enough. Forgiven. Only the forgiven will dwell with God. Only the forgiven. Sinners, forgiven by grace. Those sinners who are in their own sin, who are not forgiven, will dwell in hell for all eternity. Will receive punishment, just punishment that I deserve. But Jesus paid for me. That's what he did upon the cross. That's the sacrifice that he made to save me. Jesus is the only one with authority to forgive sin. That's what he's trying to tell us right here. I guess I could have just said that. That's what he came to do. He came because you have an unseen ailment. You have an unseen malady that you can't fix. And it makes you miserable. In fact, if you are not in Christ, I tell you today that you are miserable. Whether you admit it or not. Because you need your sins forgiven. That's man's greatest need. More than anything else in the whole world. And know this. If you are, be of good cheer. If you aren't, be of good cheer. Because Jesus can forgive your your sins. If you will just come to Him. Jesus can speak a word to you and wipe away your sins forever. Forever. The sins you did years ago. The sins you did last night. The sins you're going to do. He will cleanse you of those forever. If you'll just turn to Him. So I want to leave us. I want to leave you with with some closing applications. And I, I want us to have some takeaways that I pray that will we'll, we'll stay with us and drive down deep within us. Two I've already mentioned. Two I've already mentioned. I'm going to mention four. Two I've already talked about. But one is that there is only one with the authority to forgive sins. And that is Jesus. And along with that, He is omniscient. Meaning He knows your thoughts. He knows your thoughts, what you're thinking right now. <coughs> Scary, isn't it? But don't be scared. Turn to Him for forgiveness. Second, and I've already talked about this, but it's the irresistible grace of God that when He calls, you come. When He says, rise up and take up your mat, you do. And you're enabled to do. And you're empowered to do by His grace. And then third, I want us to think about something. I want us to think about the conversion of the soul. 
The conversion of the soul is more amazing than all of the physical healings in the whole world combined. One conversion of soul is more amazing than all of those. You say, how can that be? Because we're all going to go to the grave one day. Our physical bodies are deteriorating, but our soul, your never dying soul, is what needs to be regenerated and strengthened in Christ. But to convert a soul for God to overturn my natural resistance, well, I'm, I'm hard headed. Ask my mom. To overturn that, to change our heart, to change my will to where I don't want to run away, now I want to run too. I didn't do that. God did. He changed that. He made, gave me a new heart to believe, to convert a sinner's soul, granting them repentance and faith. I want to tell you a terrible tragedy it would be for your body to be healed and for your soul to remain condemned. That would be horrible. What, what good would that do? To, to be able to, for the paralyzed man to walk up but still be in his sins. It would do no, no eternal good. It would be tragic. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to save sinners. And if you are a sinner, that's good news. If you are self-righteous, God help you. Because he came to save sinners. He came to take our sins away and to forgive us of them. And fourthly, I want to leave you with one last takeaway. I want you to think about the man's friends. The men, the, the, the people who, who lifted him on the bed, who carried him to the house, who saw they couldn't get in, and didn't go home, but they said, we've got to get to Jesus. We've got to get him to Jesus. And if we have to tear down this roof, we're going to get in there. Have you had a friend like that? Have you had a friend that's brought you to hear the, the gospel? Maybe you don't even know them very closely, but they gave you the word of God at one time. And they planted a seed where God could save you. Have you had a friend like that? And more directly, are you a friend like that? Are you one of these? Do you have compassion for the lost, for the lost souls all around us? Charles Spurgeon said, if you have no compassion and no desire to see the lost saved, be sure of this, you are not saved yourself. That's what he said. I, uh, I concur. Are you a friend like this? Taking people to Jesus, making sure that you are a witness for him, that you are a testimony to the truth. Jesus told this man to go home. Why? Why did he tell the demoniac to stay in Gadara? To tell them of what Jesus has done. I believe he told this man to go home to tell his family about the grace of God. Do you have desire to see your, your spouse come to saving knowledge of Christ? 
Do you have desire to see your children, your nephews, aunts, your friends, your, your mother-in-law, daughter, you name it. Everyone you're in contact with, do you have desire to see them come to Christ? To have their sins forgiven? Oh, I pray that you do. I pray that you are like these friends. That, that I am like these friends. I pray and I know that I fall short. But I pray that we can be more like them. I mean, this paralytic could not come to Jesus on his own. And neither can those lost souls you know. They're not going to just mysteriously come to Christ unless the word comes to them. Unless Jesus presents himself to them. So are you laying people before the feet of Jesus? Bringing them down ropes if you need to. Are you doing that? How many are you bringing to the feet of Jesus? When you get at heaven's gate, how many will welcome you and says, thank you? Or will you just get there by the skin of your teeth and nobody really knows you when you get there? Going to heaven, that's all that matters. How many are you bringing with you? How many are you taking to the Savior? How many are you bringing here? Bring here to this. We should be bringing people and putting them in the front so they can hear the word of God and that God can save them, laying them at the feet of Jesus. Christ's disciples. If you're a believer and you're a Christ disciple, you are about, you are to be about this business. This business of evangelizing, of spreading the gospel, of bringing people. This is a fundamental work of the Christian, is to be his mouthpiece. You're an ambassador to Christ. You stand here as his ambassador while he is in heaven. You have been left here to do his work. Oh, it's a glorious work. Be about that work. If you haven't come to the Savior, come to the Savior. And after you've come, bring as many as you can to Him as well. And lay them at the feet of Jesus so that they may be saved, so that they may be baptized, so that they may be taught all that Christ commanded. May we be about that. Amen. Father, I thank you that you are the great forgiver of sins. That you saw the faith of these friends and and this paralytic man, this paralytic man, and you saved his soul. You forgave his sins. And you do the same thing to each of us whom you call by your grace. Immediately, our sins are forgiven. Immediately we can rise up and walk to newness of life. Father, we thank you for your blessed word. Lord, we thank you for your full and final pardon, which is ours in Jesus Christ. We ask for those yet to be saved, Lord, that you would trouble them. Lord, that you would even take sleep away from them. Lord, that you would bring them to their knees, to the end of themselves, that they would seek you for mercy. Lord, that they would have someone to bring them to the feet of Jesus, to lower them down to him before it is too late, before their time is spent. Lord, save them by your saving grace. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to bring others to you, 
I pray that others would come to you and receive the same pardon that we who are in Christ have already received. Lord, help us to call others to you, to the only one who has the authority to forgive sins. Lord, may even the seats that are around us today one day be filled up with souls because you have brought them and because your church has done the work that you called them to do by bringing people to the feet of Jesus. May we be faithful in the work of evangelism, calling others to see their need for a Savior, for their sins to be forgiven, and that they would trust in you. Oh, Father, I pray that that would happen. Lord, show us your glory by saving many of the lost. Continue to sanctify your people, Lord, each of us. Build us up in the faith and knowledge of Christ, I pray. Lord, part us with your blessing. It's in the name of your Son and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.